This is Further, a weekly show for the people of Harmony Bible Church, where we seek to revisit and expand on Sunday sermons with the goal of growing deeper in biblical truth that transforms our lives. Welcome back to Further. I'm Brenton Grimm. Uh, This last Sunday, Clay Baker and Matt Mitchell preached through the first half of Romans 11, and they're both here today to continue discussing it. So welcome, guys. How's it going? Hello. It's going great. Thanks for having us. Wonderful. All right. So I'm going to start with a question that we got um, from uh, someone in our body, and uh, we'll see where this goes. So... um, He says, we believe that there is no salvation apart from Jesus. What does that mean for those who died before Christ, both the Jew and the Gentile? The gospel nor any of the prophetic books did not exist at the time of Noah. So how can, for example, Noah be saved or Cain for that matter, if he had repented? End quote. What do you guys think? Well, I mentioned... um... Hebrews chapter 11 on Sunday, and I think this is really on point for that question. Uh, Hebrews chapter 11 is commonly referred to as the hall of faith, and the author of Hebrews cites example after example of Old Testament hero names we're familiar with, like Abel and Abraham and Noah even, and others, and uh, they're all commended for their faith, and um, they're saved by their faith. It, I mean, it makes it pretty clear that they're saved by faith. And so while, um, you know, they may not have had the fullest revelation that we have post-Christ, uh, they still um, are saved by the grace of God through faith in His promises. And I'll, I'll even read um, a little bit here out of chapter 11. This is verse 13. It says, "...these all died in faith." not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. And so they, they believed God's promises of uh, salvation for those who were trusting in him. They were trusting that he would um, deliver them of their sins. And he, of course, did that, and he accomplished that through the death, re- the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ that for them was yet to come, but that's what they were trusting in. And even back in Hebrews, just a little bit before that, uh, a little bit before what I read in chapter 10, in verse 12, it says, But when Christ had offered for, a, for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And so it's the, it's the one atoning sacrifice of Christ that is sufficient for the forgiveness of sins. And it's, it's past sins, it's the Old Testament sins, but it's also present sins, our sins, and future sins. It's all, uh, all atoned for by one sacrifice, and it's through faith that we receive that blessed salvation. Yeah, I think that's great, Clay. I totally agree. And something I read by R.C. Sproul earlier today, he just made the comment, we look back to Christ, but those that came before Christ who believe by faith, they were looking forward to Christ. So they look forward, we look back. 
Um, I guess that'd just be a simple way I would summarize it. Based off the passage you, you just shared, Jesus mentions in John 8, he says, uh, your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. That's what Jesus says about himself. He saw it and was glad. And uh, he doesn't give more information on what he saw and, and was glad about, but God was giving him revelation about what was to come. And I think the last comment I would make too is, I hadn't thought about this until uh, Brenton asked the question here, but I think it's important to know too, when God's revealing himself to people in the Old Testament, it's not like God the Father is in isolation, um, but Jesus and the Holy Spirit are present because mm-hmm. our God is one God, three yeah. in person. And so it may not, uh, that revelation, that full revelation of uh, the Godhead as triune may not be realized by these people that the Lord is revealing himself to. But that's kind of the mystery that the New Testament talks about. This mystery that was hidden now is revealed. It's like, oh, look, the Father, God is a Father and he has a Son, and he's always existed with the Father, and he has given him in these last days for his people, and this is what everything was leading to. And um, so it's the... The, the blinders have been lifted to, to say, um, to understand what this looks like. And so just not not trying to think of God in, in uh, isolation from the Son and the Spirit because our God is one and he always has been. Yeah, that's that's helpful, I think, to bring the Trinity into that because, you know, we we believe in a very you know, Trinitarian gospel that that all of the um, all of the members of the the Godhead are in are, you know, crucial and involved in in Amen. our salvation yeah and and that is not plan b it's not like the the old testament was plan a mm-hmm. and 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 now we have a plan b of jesus yeah this was you know this was prophesied back in genesis 3 mm-hmm. yeah um and it, the plan had never changed and so the the people that you know noah and all the people mentioned in in Hebrews eleven, not that they're the only ones, but there, there's nothing by which they could have been saved had had Jesus not come later and finish that work. Oh, that's yeah. right. And Hebrews ten four says it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Yeah. So I, I think you're right on point there, Breton. Um, the Old Testament law, it's not as though that was plan A and Christ's sacrifice is plan B. It's its that that was always pointing to the plan A of Christ's sacrifice. Yeah. Good. Okay. So uh, I have a couple questions here. Um, Paul brings up the story of Elijah here in Romans 11, and he, he quotes Elijah in verse 3 where he says, Lord, they have killed your prophets and they have demolished your altars. And I alone am left, and they seek my life. And this is a reference from from First Kings nineteen ten. Did uh, did any either of you guys look into the story at all as you were preparing? Um, and if so, can you kind of give us like who who is he talking about here? Who is Elijah talking about? Um, and do you have kind of a brief history you could give on uh, on what's happening? Well, I could, I could keep it very brief. It. Uh, so in Elijah's time, the king was Ahab, his wife was Jezebel, and they were just really wicked, and they were leading um, the the Jewish people uh, into idolatry. So they were, they were leading them away from the true God, which was so common for the kings of Israel. 
uh, in, in, in those days. But Ahab and Jezebel, they were some of the worst. And so uh, Elijah was standing firm for the truth. Uh, and just a little bit before the part that Paul references, Elijah had famously defeated the prophets of Baal on, on Mount Carmel. And it's a great story there of how uh, the prophets of Baal, the false god that Ahab was leading everyone to worship, um, they were not able to demonstrate the the truth of their god. The fire, you know, did not come down uh, from heaven uh, uh, like they were trying to call Baal to do. But Elijah, even after dousing his offering with water, um, you know, God, the true God, uh, rained fire down from heaven and. Anyway, just demonstrated the truth of the one true God. And so Elijah was victorious then, but then in a very short time later, as we read it in scripture, he's on the run because Jezebel is mad at him and is uh, you know, persecuting him, gonna, gonna come after him and kill him. And so he flees and he goes to uh, Mount Horeb, uh, which is another name for Mount Sinai. And it's there um, that he's... Uh, seems to be in despair, thinking he's the last faithful one left to the Lord, and the Lord, uh, you know, kind of humbles him and reminds him that no, there's seven thousand. He's kept seven thousand uh, for himself who have not bowed the knee to Baal. And so, yeah, that's that's the story in a nutshell. Matt, if I if I left out some critical details, please feel free to add. Yeah, it's good, Matt. Yeah. Matt, I'm just going to ask you, why do you think Paul brought that up? Why why do you think that he references? the story of Elijah here in Romans 11? Yeah, great question. So Elijah is using as an example of someone who's discouraged over what his fellow kinsmen have done. They've abandoned the living God for idols, and he feels like he's isolated, he's alone, I'm the only one that's left. God reminds him that's not true. There's a remnant chosen by grace. And then Paul links this uh, to his current station and where he's at, in context, Romans 9 to 11, Paul's grieved over his fellow kinsmen who don't believe the Jews. Right. They've rejected Christ. Um, he is their Messiah. He is the Savior. Uh, they don't believe that. So he's grieved over that, but he knows he's not alone. And he's saying, okay, I'm not the only one like Elijah. There, God has a remnant even today. And he says that in the text. Um, he, he links it in, in chapter 11, verse 5. He says, so too at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. So... Uh, I think it'd be fair to say he sees himself uh, similar to an Elijah situation in uh, in his day and age, and right into the Romans that um, he's grieved and heart torn over what's taken place, but he has he has hope too because God is he still has a remnant. And I made reference to this in my sermon, but I just think it's funny that in First Kings nineteen it's a seven thousand person remnant. So um, it's it's not a, it's not gigantic, but it's not small. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, you know, the remnant. It's not just a, just this handful. You know, a couple dozen people. I've got a remnant, seven thousand mm-hmm. that are faithful. So um, praise God for the remnant. Yeah, yeah, that's that's helpful. I think, but you're you're right. That is why he's bringing it up. I think Paul does feel alone in that, and you know, the story of of Elijah in first Kings is really a story of apostasy of his people. His people have, have abandoned what they once confessed. Um, and, and clay and I were talking a little bit before this, and it, I don't think that that necessarily parallels what, what's happening with the, uh, with the Jewish people in Paul's day. 
but at the same time, I think there's something that we, we could learn today from the way Elijah responds to that. So do you guys have any thoughts on like what apostasy looks like in, in the church today? What do you, does it look different than it did in the, in, in the Bible? What, what does it look like today for us? I'll hop in on this real quick. I'm thinking of a couple things, Brenton. Uh, so if apostasy is, you know, I'm renouncing my faith. I don't believe it anymore. I'm walking away. If that's kind of a, that's like my street definition of it. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> right. You're in the vernacular. But I think that, so in our day and day, there's a big word called deconstruction. Mm. It's where people are, uh, I'm unpacking, I'm tearing apart, I'm deconstructing my Christian faith and... Um, I think there's aspects of this where we can deconstruct things that aren't biblical and that aren't good, and mm-hmm. that um, it's like, well, that's not even what I'm supposed to be believing anyways. I need to toss that out. Yeah. I need to deconstruct that. But uh, in the kind of the mainstream, it, it's being used as a way to say, I don't believe anymore. I'm done. I'm out of here. Um, so that's a real danger, and we could talk. We could have um, a whole podcast just about that, and um, – how do you uh, lean into that and shepherd through uh, deconstruction in our day? Well, and just and just a note on de- deconstruction. I think that to, you're right, but it's also like a halfway. It, it's not a full renunciation of God. Like most most people that are deconstructing, that I've seen at least have have still remained theist in some way, but they've they've gotten rid of the religion. They've gotten rid of the. Uh, the part that they felt felt bound to, and so it, it's kind of like this halfway thing. If I'm not an atheist, but I'm not, right. I'm not a Christian anymore, necessarily. Right, and and that's why I said we could do a uh, we could do a whole podcast just on that For because sure. I've yep. I've also seen that too. Uh, that um, yeah, I shouldn't say it always leads to I completely renounce everything, mm-hmm. but I have seen that. But I've also seen the halfway, and I've also seen yeah the healthier version of. Hey, I, I thought about this a little bit harder, and I was believing something that wasn't even scriptural in the Bible from my past history, church hurt, or whatever. Yeah. So there's it, it's a, an array of different um, forms there. But the second part I was going to say, so let's just say apostasies, I renounce it altogether. Mm-hmm. I think what we see in the Bible, especially with the Jews, that is really important to note, is that the Jews didn't reject God as much as they brought in other gods with Yahweh. Mm. Um, so sometimes you'll see, I mean, you'll see really bad kings, like Ahab's a terrible king. Uh, uh, and you see these other kings from Israel that basically were trying to get God out of the temple and just worship other idols only. But I think you see this theme that God's people had the high places still, like these other places of worship in addition to the temple, or they brought idols into the temple to worship alongside with Yahweh. And I think that has uh, more a lot of relevance to our just Christian life in general and what the church kind of struggles and goes through is there's these other things that compete for the Lord mm-hmm. in our life and we bring in and then uh, maybe they can start off as a good thing. I don't think Baal, uh, I, <laughs> worship starts off as a good thing, but you can kind of see where I'm going with this. There's something else that it's not bad, it's not idol worship, but it can become the superior thing. And it kind of shoves God out of first place. And so I would just say um, those are a few comments I have about how I have seen God's people through the Old Testament and how it is relevant for us today is, isn't just like, oh, yeah, I don't believe in God, but it's, I believe in God, but I've brought in these other things that 
Oh, they're actually taking God's place. Interesting. It, yeah. Slowly but surely. That's similar to what I was thinking about, Matt, in Brenton's question. Um, I don't have a lot of firsthand experience with somebody uh, apostatizing in, you know, the truest or most technical sense of that word, where they're, you know, expressly outright renouncing their faith and uh, walking away in a very visible way there. But um, what I see a lot of is people that were at one time active part of the church, maybe it was the church I was, I grew up in, um, which is different from Harmony, or, you know, even more recently, maybe it's in my time here at Harmony, but people that were really, you know, they, they seem to be, uh, to use a common expression, uh, on fire for the Lord, and, uh, you know, just enriched by their faith, and growing in their faith, and, and serving, and, and before too long, you just you don't see much of them anymore, and 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 they just kind of drift away. And and you might ask them what's going on, you know, and and play with them to come back. But and there could be a, a whole number of different reasons. But kind of like what you were saying, Matt, it's not that they've necessarily renounced God or their their faith in the Lord, but it, it just doesn't seem to be as important to them anymore. Um, and like I said, there could be a number of reasons, but I, I'm, I'm in those situations. I'm always reminded of that word in, in Revelation. Uh, this is in chapter two in the letter to the church in Ephesus. Um, I don't want to rip this out of context here. I'm not saying this is what this means, but this is the word that comes to mind when I uh, think of people that have kind of drifted away from the church. Um, but uh, the Lord, the Lord says to the church in Ephesus, "I have this against you that you have abandoned the love you had at first. And I think I think of that as um, people that seem to profess a faith and profess a love and manifest a love for the Lord, and now it's it's just not part of their life anymore, not in a visible way, at least. So, based off of you know this first King story and Elijah, what should our what should our response be to those people? I think uh, I think we see an example in Elijah and in Paul from our text that first they're grieving. Like it's not like uh, they're not shaking a finger at them. They're not like being uh, pious, uh, holier art than thou. You know, I can't believe they did this. You know, they should have known better. They're grieved over it. Yeah. And I think anybody who ha- knows someone who's close to them, family member, close friend, who has started to depart from the faith or has completely the, you know, the hard knocks of that is this just stinks. And I'm complaining to God. I'm just pleading with him. God, like why? And I think that's where we've got to start for sure. Um, yeah, that I just would commend the elders at Harmony. If, if, if you're a member of our church and, um, and the elders – perceive that you're starting to kind of wander away or drift or they just don't know. Um, I think our elders do a pretty good job of, of pursuing people. And it is it is out of a heart of love and it's not condemnation, judgment, shame, anything like that. It's 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 like, man, we, we love you. We care for you. Mm-hmm. We know that what will be best for you is if you remain in the body of Christ uh, so that we can all be edifying each other, you know, through the spirit together as we walk with the Lord or attempt to walk with the Lord in his spirit. And so, yeah, we we regularly uh, have conversations with people and pursue them and and um, try to try to bring them back, draw them back. And yeah, that's 
that's a, a really interesting point that, you know, God has set up so many practical guardrails for us to avoid going down that road. And, and I mean, church membership, the, the body, church discipline, all of these things are indispensable to, to that. Like there are means that keep us within the body. And so, um, yeah, that's a, that's a good point and something to be taken seriously. Yeah. And, and one more thing I would just say it, this is kind of, uh, towards the end of our passage and, uh, that we preached this last week, you know, Paul talks about if I have the power to bring them back in, you know, and right. uh, we talking about the Jews in that context, but going along with what you guys just said about elders and membership, and we're going to come after you because we love you. Yes. And yes. And sometimes people avoid all that and they go for it and they become a prodigal and they live in the world. And I think all of us can uh, relate to that to an extent, but some people it was like, I blew past all the guardrails because <laughs> I wanted what I wanted, but then it proved to not be satisfying. Mm-hmm. And I came to my senses, kind of like the prodigal son, and I ran home and I realized <laughs> that that really wasn't what it, what it, uh, what I thought it would be. And uh, I have everything I need in my father's house. And um, that's the beauty of the church, the local church too, is people come back and they're not met with shame or I told you so, but hey, I'm so glad you're here. We love you. Always have. And thank, praise God for grace. Yeah. Great. Okay. Uh, I got one last question. Um, you guys both talked about the importance of humility when it comes to, to our salvation. Uh, verse 20 says, so do not become proud, but fear. Do you see this as, as being a problem in the church today? This kind of... Um, pride over over us being the ones that are saved yes <laughs> if so how i talked about this two sermons ago but i've had these points in my life that i can really clearly point to where I have made my salvation and my standing with God about what I have done and my zeal for him and how hardcore I'm going after God. And that always leads to problems, always makes me like a Pharisee. If you're about in the Gospels, there's the Pharisees that are always uh, out of step with what Jesus is actually trying to get across because they're self-righteous and it's about them, what I've accomplished. And, um, you know, I just, Luke 18 has got that story about the Pharisee and He's bragging about what he's doing in the temple with God as in his prayer. Thank you. I thank you that I do this, that, and the other, and I'm not like this tax collector. And the tax collector is far off, beats his chest, says, you know, Lord, forgive me. I'm a sinner. And Jesus says, who walked away justified? And he says, the one who was was humble and, and feared and wasn't proud. And uh, that's, that's something I have. The Lord has to keep teaching me that over and over again because it's just so easy to think I've done something for him. And it's like, no, this is all grace. And it always will be. So that's yeah, that's I, fresh. Yeah, that resonates with me too, Matt. And um, you know, I think something that I have a tendency to do, and I'm, I'm sure some of my brothers and sisters do as well, is is to only um, be thinking about or looking to the encouraging uh, truths of the gospel, and they're super encouraging, of course. They're the most encouraging thing. But here we're confronted with a command to not become proud, but fear. And so we have to wrestle with what that word fear means. And um, in the commentaries I was reading, they were encouraging me uh, not to be too quick to just 
uh, translate that word in my mind as like um, uh, reverence, mere, mere reverence or mere kind of uh, worship. Um, again, not to, not to, they were cautioning me us uh, not to put too positive a spin on it, but to really sit with the gravity of the word fear. And, and that fits with the context of the passage where we're to note both the kindness and the severity of mm-hmm. God. And I think that is really humbling. Uh, not, we're not supposed to necessarily fear that we could lose our salvation, and I address that at some length in the sermon, but be humbled that, like you said, Matt, I, I didn't bring anything to the table to, to merit my salvation, mm-hmm. and it's, it's only by the grace of God that I'm saved, and it's and it's by His grace that I'm kept in Him, and 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 the alternative could have been, but for God's grace, the alternative would have been very, very different, and absolutely something uh, to be dread, dreading over. Um, and so I think this is a good word. It's a good word for me, and I'm sure it's a good word for us in the church too. That it's. Yeah, we're encouraged by the gospel, but it's not all warm and fuzzy. Sometimes we need to sit with the fear of the gospel too, the fear of God's grace and, and, and how our lives could have been, destinies could have been so different, but for his grace. Yeah. Yeah, that's, I, I think that's helpful to, to you know, kind of, kind of put fear into its rightful place there, that there's nothing that holds us other than the grace of God. So, um, yeah. it's a it's a good warning for us and i think for the church um that you know we uh we've done nothing we've done nothing more uh than people that aren't saved and we're just uh saved by grace so great well i think uh we're gonna end this one here uh, a little shorter than normal so uh enjoy that but um i appreciate you guys coming in yeah and uh Thanks for preaching. I think we're going to be back next week with the second half of Romans 11. So, looking it, forward to it. Israel in the end times. Israel Here we go. in the end times. Thanks, Brandon. We'll see how Thanks, controversial Brandon. we get next week. <laughs>